Welcome to Top of the Game with Javier Sade, where we talk to amazing people that are shaping the world. These lightning round talks explore what makes remarkable leaders tick. Thinkers and doers pushing humankind forward and at the top of their games. Impactful insights, global perspectives, valuable wisdom you can use every day in your life and work. This is Top of the Game. Enjoy today's episode. Here's Javier. Today, I'm excited to welcome Randy Quarles. Randy knows more about finance, banking, private equity, fintech, and economic policy than literally just about anyone in the world. This talk is a masterclass that touches on all of these subjects, especially the changing role of banks in the world economy and its intersection with technology. He's a private equity investor and past practicing attorney who served as the first ever vice chair of Federal Reserve for supervision. He concurrently chaired the Financial Stability Board from 2018 to 2021. He has held several consequential financial policy posts over his career, including being Undersecretary of Treasury for Domestic Finance under George W. Bush. After leaving the Bush administration, he became the founder and head of the Signature Group, a private investment firm, which was preceded by being a managing director of the Carlyle Group, one of the largest private equity firms in the world. Randy Quarles, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Stuff you've done over decades is just breathtaking, um, but probably it's worthwhile. And obviously a lot of people know, know who you are. You had such public roles in the past, but it'd be worthwhile for you to talk a little bit about your origin. Where were you born? Uh, sure. I was uh, I was born in San Francisco, uh, but lived there uh, very uh, briefly. My uh, father was uh, stationed there in the Navy uh, in the late 50s, and uh, but uh, grew up in the West, uh, mostly in uh, Utah, uh, in a little town in northern Utah. Most of my career was you know, in New York and Washington and London, but uh, Utah's always been home and we're back home. We'll get to that in a, your amazing career in a second, Randy. But before we delve into that, everyone that comes on the show have reached heights that are incredible. And uh, all of us have some sort of formative experience and we all have a good number of them. But what is one thing sort of in your, I don't know if it's your teenage years or maybe your early career years where you learned a lesson? Oh, there have been a lot of them, most of them having to do with misjudgments of one form or another. Mm -hmm. uh, but I would say that I still use today uh, when I was a summer associate as a, I started out as a lawyer. Uh, so sec after your second year of law school, you generally work at a law firm over the summer. So I was a summer associate at a, a firm called Davis Polk and Wardwell, which was the firm I worked at for the whole first part of my career. Um, and I was given a pretty routine administrative task. Uh, we had a lot of clients that owned uh, bonds of uh, that had been issued by the public power authority in the no Northwest, the Washington Public Power Supply System, I think. Uh, which became known as whoops uh, for reasons that would be obvious and uh whoops had gotten into trouble because they built a bunch of nuclear power plants that were uh expected to respond to a huge increase in the need for power uh in the pacific northwest in the sort of late 70s early 80s this is 1984 
demand had never materialized and the, it had become much regulatory, much more difficult to build nuclear power plants. So the whole project had become mired uh, in disaster. Uh, but nonetheless, the the project had entered into take or pay contracts with various municipalities to say to the municipalities, even if we never deliver you a drop of power, you have to pay for it. And those contracts were viewed as inviolable. And my job was to gather some of the uh, precedent around that uh, to support sort of a, a regular view. And instead of doing that job, uh, I spent a couple of weeks researching the law myself and uh, the relevant state statutes and looking at the contracts and concluded after my two years of law school that the contracts would not be honored and that people would lose money on the bonds, all the money on the bonds, uh, and wrote up a memo stating that and delivered it uh, to the partner. Uh, and the next day was called into a uh, uh, into a conference room with seven of the firm's most senior partners. <laughs> oh, say, no. oh, no. What, what on earth, you know, what is the matter with you? <laughs> you know, we wanted you to pull together just some, uh, you know, routine background. We did not want a memo in the files stating that the advice we have been giving for a decade is wrong. At the time, I was also wondering what was the matter with me uh, that I <laughs> would have done that. <laughs> And uh, but I stuck to my guns and I said, look, you know, this is what the law says. This is what the contracts say. And while they weren't happy about it and it took a while, uh, sort of after a month, uh, the firm came around to that view and advised uh, its clients to sell their bonds. And Davis Polk's clients were among the few that managed to get out of that with their, uh, you know, with their shirts and, you know, Several years, you know, several years later, when I was being considered for partnership, a number of the partners kind of based their uh, decision on my having uh, delivered that memo and stuck to my guns in the face of all their fury uh, all those years before. And, uh, you know, that has been a lesson to me through my whole career, which is, uh, you know, to be willing to take the contrary view and to stick with it, even when uh, it's certainly not comfortable. And and a lot of other people uh, who are pretty smart have concluded otherwise. If you have a view, you should state it and you should stick with it. Leadership is hard, is how I would sum up uh, that amazing story, Randy. There's so much to unpack there, but let me, let me kind of jump a little bit into, you know, from there, like many lawyers, you left the law, and then you ended up doing so many things between the public and private sectors. You were a partner at Carlisle, you currently run a family office, but somewhere in between those 30 years, you happened to be the Undersecretary of Treasury, and until recently, you were Vice Chairman of the Federal Reserve. Talk about sticking to your guns. In those public-facing, public-serving roles that require policymakers, and you made a lot of financial and economic policy, obviously, in the United States. How do you deal with the, I don't want to say politics, because I don't want to go into how the US is today so polarized, but generally people pulling you in every direction. How do you stay with your conviction? Uh, well, the first, you have to have a conviction. And so, you know, I was, uh, I mean, one of the things that I was fortunate in in my public service was it's always been in areas where I've had uh, quite a lot of 
you know, where, where I've had a fair bit of experience. So mm-hmm. I came to one of the reasons I was willing to to serve was that I felt that I knew something about the areas in which I'd been asked to serve. And so I had convictions uh, that I could stick with. I think, you know, the other, you know, for me, part of the uh, of having confidence in the positions that I took was the willingness to talk with others who thought differently. So I always I always sought a lot of input, even though it was, they generally were issues that I knew quite well. I always sought a lot of input. I tried as particularly to seek input from people who thought differently than I did. And the, the ability to reflect on those differing views, to adjust mine where it seemed to make sense, to realize where I thought I had it right, even in the mm-hmm. face of differing views, all I think helped anchor your confidence to then make a decision and to uh, and to move forward with it, even though you knew that uh, uh, a lot of people were going to criticize it. It's part for the course that people have different perspectives. Usually, that's what yields with the best solution. Let's stay with um, with the macro economy. Um, you, um, for those listeners that don't know. The small job Randy had was essentially to be the top supervisor for the banking system in the United States. And banking has changed so much uh, in the last, you know, since it was invented, let alone in the last 20, 10, five years, mostly because of technology, access to uh, all kinds of things. Our debt is growing. Like there's just so many big factors. So in when you think about macroeconomic policy, where that, you know, where that intersects with the safety and soundness of our banking system, and we saw a big, big whoops, not to bring up whoops again, but let's bring it up, a big whoops with SVB and kind of it looked like it wasn't systemic contagion. But how do you, that tug of war between making sure that the wheels are greased so that money flows, but that there's no blowups. I I know that's a big question, uh, but I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Sure. Well, uh, first, I think that it's important that we recognize that there are trade-offs when you're thinking about sort of the relationship between the financial system and the real economy. There's trade-offs between the safety of the financial system and the dynamism of the real economy. That is to say, you can you can by increasing the capital levels and the required liquidity of the banks make them safer and safer and up to a certain level that's a good thing but uh but as you do that you're reducing the ability of those institutions uh to provide financial support to the real economy and so you're at the margin limiting growth and so it's so it's a trade-off and uh, you know as opposed to uh, a costless exercise mm-hmm. to, make a bank, to make the banking system safer and safer. The second thing that I would say in thinking about that is that the, the goal on the safety side of the equation shouldn't be to make the system perfectly safe. Mm-hmm. And, and officially, that has never been the goal. The Dodd-Frank Act, which is intended to make the system much safer, was not really intended to make it impossible for any bank to fail, the stated objective, and I believe the right objective, was to make it possible for any bank 
to fail without having the significant uh, uh, sort of follow-on consequences that happened in the great financial crisis. Uh, you know, that even a sizable bank would be able to fail and you'd have enough resilience in the system that the system would go on, but you didn't try to, to require such levels of safety in the system that no bank could fail because of the recognition of the cost that would be for the overall economy in constraining the banking system mm -hmm. that much. So, you know, I think if you, you know, if you look at that balance, I think we've struck the balance in the United States pretty well. Uh, up to now, uh, the level we greatly increased the levels of capital after the great financial crisis, and that was the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. That was done all around the world. And I think when you look at two events, the the you know COVID crisis uh, in the spring of 2020, uh, a lot of pressure on the banking system. We did multiple stress tests over the course of that year on the banking system to determine if there's no additional sort of fiscal support for the economy and losses begin to roll up into the banking system, will it be resilient enough to withstand this? And the conclusion in all seven of those tests was yes, the system, you know, even if all the losses we'd expect, if there's not a penny of federal support, uh, the system can withstand that. And then the the events that of the spring that you uh, noted in your question, you know, we had three reasonably sizable banks fail um, mm -hmm. for a series, you know, for a set of what seemed to be idiosyncratic consequences, and it didn't turn out to be systemic. Um, so I think the conclusion from from both of those is that you know that balance between making the system safe while still allowing it to be as supportive as possible of a robust economy has been struck pretty well in the U.S. Yeah, that's you just gave a master class. Uh, in banking, and I know that you were able to do it in three minutes because you spent a life thinking about these things. Let's stay a little bit with SVB. A lot of the listeners are probably um, uh, younger people that are very techy, and you know they don't really walk into a branch and they send Venmos. Yeah, you. I know you're very versed in fintech as well. Um, but in terms of just um, you know, if you combine that, you know, trillions of dollars that we did pump into the economy because of the free fall we were in with COVID, mm -hmm. with the speed at which Silicon Valley Bank, literally the run took eight hours and it was people texting each other, you have this kind of uh, machinery that was designed and built long time ago, yet the ways in which people interact with these things was designed for speed. So you kind of have this big machine and you describe, you know, the, the tug of war really well, but yet the way people want to interact with it is like really fast and really quick and I want my money now. So how do you think about that trade, if you're talking about trade-offs between sort of the, let's call it the traditional financial system and where it probably will end up going yeah, I th the the question of speed is a uh, is a really uh, important one because one of the traditional mechanisms for a bank to respond to a run was to attempt to slow down the uh, the ability of depositors to withdraw their money until sort of people could catch their breath and decide whether the bank was really in trouble or not. So a solvent institution, you know, would you know 
people would come in to get their money. They'd count it out in dollar bills really slowly, ask about the kids, um, you know, uh, what did you think <laughs> of the basketball game? And, uh, you know, and, and all of that is impossible uh, in yep. the modern world and certainly uh, impossible in a bank with the clientele of Silicon Valley Bank. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so that raises the question of, well, uh, you know, how should we think about the liquidity requirements of a bank in the modern world? We, you know, banks are required to keep a certain amount of very highly liquid assets precisely so that if a lot of people show up and want their money, they've got money that they can give them right away. But no bank can respond to all of their depositors showing up at once. And uh, but that was really going to be that was such an unlikely event. The biggest bank run in U.S. history up until Silicon Valley Bank was WAMU in 2008. And as as you as you know, uh, I know, and as a number of your listeners may know, that was 16 billion dollars that was withdrawn from a bank that was a little bit larger than Silicon Valley Bank over the course of 10 days. So 1.6 billion dollars a day. Silicon Valley Bank had 42 billion dollars withdrawn from it in a handful of hours on Thursday and another 100 billion lined up to leave on Friday morning. So that's a, a much greater liquidity need. And all of our rules and practices around banking have required banks to have you know, enough liquid assets to meet a historically large need, you really couldn't uh, uh, have mm -hmm. enough liquid assets to meet that kind of a need and still be a bank. You'd just be a money market fund. You'd just be a, a mattress, essentially, uh, <laughs> where people get their money. So, so I think that the answer is that we have to go look back to the reason for the founding of the Fed in the early 20th century, which was precisely to be that source of liquidity for banks that couldn't have all their own liquidity internally. We'd kind of lost track of that purpose mm -hmm. of the Federal Reserve over the decades because the liquidity needs had kind of gotten less and less over the years. If they've now returned to the types of liquidity need that the banking system had in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, that people might want all of their money out very quickly, then you're not going to be able to satisfy that with what had been our mm -hmm. approach, which is to say the bank itself must have more liquid assets inside of it. We're only going to be able to satisfy that by the Fed going back to its roots and saying, we will provide that liquidity for you in the event of these types of runs that may become more common. And what's interesting about SVB, not to keep beating this dead horse, um, is that that particular situation was not a uh, was not a solvency issue. The assets they had were really good assets. They were U.S. Treasuries. It was just that there was a mismatch, and that mismatch created a liquidity crunch. But let's not get into that. Um, I want to move a little bit, Randy, to uh, leadership and, you know, kind of back to the conviction discussion we were having earlier. You're dealing with trillions of dollars billions of lives, right? Because the central bank of the most powerful nation on earth, whose currency is the reserve currency on earth, on and on and on. You had an extremely important job. Any one little decision could spell disaster. How did you and the, and the board, and this is kind of at the leadership level, not necessarily the tactical guts of it, but what was the process? Was it a real discussion? 
where you, you went to blows with people that had different views or did when you came in, you had like 80% agreement. Can you describe a little bit on the big issues you dealt with, how it was that you ended up at consensus or at least majority decisions? The governance of the Fed is, is very complex and differs from issue to issue, but let's just take monetary policy as the kind of biggest uh, challenge for the Fed uh, and, and uh, among the most, uh, and where the governance is probably most consequential. So there are 19 people that participate in decisions about monetary policy. The seven members of the Board of Governors in Washington who are government officials appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate. Uh, and then the 12 presidents of the various reserve banks around the country who are not government officials. They are, you know, they are appointed through a private sector process. The reserve banks are not government institutions. They are owned by the banks in their different parts of the country. Uh, but that's our central banking system and the monetary policy. Uh, the formal vote is all seven of the governors and then five of the 12 reserve bank presidents and it rotates through them uh, through the years so that it's a rotating five of the 12. And, uh, but all 19 people meet every six weeks to discuss monetary policy and the next monetary policy decision. And all 19 people participate in all the discussions. Mm -hmm. And that's really important in ensuring that you've got all the information that you need, that you've got a wide range of views about the decision. Uh, you know, the reserve banks are placed strategically, not as strategically as they ought to be in the in the 21st century, because they're all where they were put in 1913. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, but nonetheless, they're around the country. So you've got input from different parts of the uh, of the continent. Um, and, and lots of different views, people with different backgrounds. And then what I think is really encouraging and important about the process is that it is really quite apolitical. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, people have differing political views, but the monetary policy views are rarely driven by those politics. Probably, you know, one of the one of the folks I agreed with most uh, and that we were sort of allies in these discussions was uh, the president of the Reserve Bank of Atlanta, a guy named Rafael Bostic, who had been a, you know, a, an assistant secretary of housing and urban development in the Obama administration, quite, you know, quite liberal politics. Mm -hmm. um, you know, on paper, you would have said you know, he was an economist. I was a lawyer. I mean, you could go down the list. You would have looked at us and said, I mean, these two people have, you know, well, there will be no overlap of the Venn diagrams of their views on anything. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and yet, you know, we we approached these questions, uh, you know, putting all of that in the background and just thinking about them as a matter of first principles mm -hmm. and came to very similar conclusions. And and for the most almost universally, the people around that table, those 19 people came to those discussions trusting in each other's goodwill uh, and and discussing them, willing to be persuaded, knowing that uh, the others were smart people with differing views who'd also given a lot of thought to this. And, uh, and I think it produces some very good decisions. It also is important. I mean, that's the real job of the chairman of the Fed, which people sometimes misunderstand, which is to try to wring 
a coherent decision and a coherent policy out of these discussions of 19 people who have widely differing views. Yeah, expansive brains discussing very hard problems need a good referee. Um, and, you know, this, I, I really want to send this snippet to the members of Congress so that they can listen to somebody, I know you're right of center, but like to somebody that has worked on both sides of the aisle and ended up with agnostic, clinical, and very grounded decisions, something that sadly we all are hungry for. I really appreciate you kind of running us through this whirlwind of, of uh, embodied of knowledge you have uh, amassed over all these years. Randy, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. For information and links about today's guests, check out the show notes and visit topofthegame-thepod.com. Your host, Javier Sade, the show Top of the Game. Thanks for listening.